0: Unintentional second degree murder, third degree murder, second degree manslaughter.
1: I think a John is coming. My dad is going to change the world. He's going to start to change it now.
0: Guilty, guilty, guilty.
2: This can be a giant step forward in the march toward justice in America. A
3: nation and a world exhale together in a deep, healing breath in the name of George Floyd. Today, we are able to breathe again the poison of racism diluted a bit more in the guilty verdict of former police officer Derek Chauvin. As a nine-year-old child stood witness to a murder in broad daylight in the streets of her hometown, a modern-day lynching caught on 17-year-old Darnella Fraser's cell phone changed the course of history.
2: This has been a powerful statement for the world to see because we're all united together now
3: fellow officer after officer testified against Chauvin, who was no stranger to police shootings and violence over his career.
2: Is this a use of force? Yes, sir.
3: After the verdict, many remembering and comparing this historic trial to the devastating outcome of the 1991 Rodney King trial in Los Angeles. And now, the healing begins in a city and a nation. Today on Context, in light of the guilty verdict, we take another look at our Realities of Anti-Indigenous and Anti-Black Racism program, but get an update from the Minneapolis Bishop Harding Smith and a conversation with social justice and law enforcement advocate, former RCMP Staff Sergeant Alain Babineau, for a reaction on what this means for Canadian policing. Here's Maggie John. Bishop Harding, what were your thoughts when you heard the verdict?
2: I was very elated. Um, this is the first time in the history here in Minnesota that we have ever uh, charged and found a white officer guilty of murder. So um, I was elated. The Floyd family, they were glad um, about this verdict. So we we were all elated. Um, But at the same time, I was a little skeptical because I know that we have a lot of work to do, a lot of work ahead. And I'm saying to everyone, this is not the time to get too comfortable. We have a lot of work ahead, a lot of work to do.
0: When you talk about work ahead, what... Does that look like? Because I know there's talk now of, of looking at the police force in Minneapolis a lot more closely, doing investigation into you know even previous cases. What does the work look like today?
2: A lot of files are going to be reopened and um, uh, Minneapolis Police Department has a long history of systemic racism. I'm glad, we are all happy uh, that the accountability for officers has started. But we know that the real problem, there's, there's a Derek Chauvin in every department that you go to, the real problem is addressing racism. Um, policing, we as Black people felt that it was never meant for us. Um, every time a police show up, it's always to bring pain, to inflict pain, or to take us to jail. They never stop to say hey you know you got a flat maybe I help you out is always to inflict pain so police has never been there for us, so we are looking at this verdict and and and, and the, that we're looking at the cost, you know how that shoving come about is due to racism. The department was structured this way, that we as black people, we are less than, we have never been seen as equals. And so until we start to address the root causes of how we got here, we are gonna get here, six months from now, we'll be here, right here, discussing another young black lives, uh, black life taking at the hands of police.
0: I know that you met with uh, Jesse Jackson, who is you know, a, a pioneer when it comes to civil rights. Um, what did he have to say about what has unfolded in Minnesota?
2: Um, Jesse was just here last year uh, when uh, Floyd got murdered and he was speaking exactly what he's saying today that we got to address the root cause of all of this. You know? Uh, Derek Chauvin didn't just happen overnight. This has been the practice of police all across the United States. This has been the way we as a people have been treated. When we are pulled over, we are made to get down. We are made to lay down on the ground. We are made to, to lay down with a knee in our back, even though we don't have no weapons. And, and some of us have not even been in a prison before. So. We have seen this time and time again, and it's because it's this fear where, where we as a people, we are not seen as equals. We are seen as animals. We are seen as less than. We are seen as people that they can treat any kind of way, and they will not face persecution. So um, things are changing now.
0: You know, we've heard a lot of the word justice and some people are saying we won't see justice until things fully change exactly what you're saying, sir. What does justice look like? And I know you talk about, um, you've just said, you know, that means getting down to the root of what racism looks like. But can we use the word justice when it comes to this verdict? Are we getting a peek into what justice could look like for not just uh, Minneapolis, for but for Black people worldwide?
2: For me, for the family, um, what justice eventually looks like is that the death of George Floyd, the death of Dante Wright, will, will start to change the culture. The culture of racism will start to change the culture where we can be seen as a people, as honest working taxpayers. Now that's justice, that Floyd's death would not be in vain, but it would have not just start accountability, but it will also have the conversation about racism, about who we wanna be as a nation and where we wanna go. You know, you look down and see what happened over North Minneapolis, South Minneapolis, businesses was burnt down. Some of those businesses are never coming back. You know, what is justice? Time and time again, we've been here, you know, until we start, we've been here before, until we start to address, why are we here? Why is it that so many Black people, as compared to white, are gunned down at the hands of police? Why? This is not a coincidence. You know, it's not a coincidence And we go back, we talk about training, we talk about a lot of things, but we also have to look at ourselves as a nation, as a people. You know, we... Uh, Not too long ago, even our constitution said that Black people were not real people. We were only three-fifths a person. So when you have that mindset um, that goes over hundreds of years, viewing a particular group of people as less than even law enforcement, the policing, uh, uh, their origin was based on not treating Black people fairly, but treating Black people as criminals and people that are less than.
0: My last question to you, sir. 11 months ago, we didn't know George Floyd. The world didn't know. I know you knew him, uh, but the world didn't know George Floyd now. We have his image um, impressed in our minds. We have seen the last nine and a half minutes of his life. How should George Floyd be remembered? I know that you, um, you walked with him for a short period of time and knew him.
2: Yeah, and uh, he was a gentle giant and um, I, I still had those memories that will never be taken away. And uh, I, I think uh, for me, um, when I think of George and I'm going to remember him, as a civil rights leader that turned the dial, that brought about accountability um, in policing in America. Because I truly believe that going forward, um, in order for law enforcement to survive, they must be accountable, they must be transparent. So I think the death of George Floyd is going to go a long way where we as a people will remember his death, remember this man, that in his death, as cruel as it was, that many other black children will be alive today because his death turned a dial and started to hold officers accountable, not just in this country, But all across Um, the world, we as a people got together, the world rose up, and Chauvin was not found guilty because um, we had great lawyers. No, he was found guilty because the world demanded it, because you demanded it, because the, the reporters demanded it. What we saw with our own eyes was so plain to see, and people are saying enough. We are tired of this. We are tired of our businesses being burned down. We are tired of the lootings. We're tired of the shootings. We're tired of the murders of our young children. People don't want to live like this anymore. So we are re examining ourselves, and people all across America today are re examining themselves. Churches are having this conversation. And uh, because this young man, Um, uh, give his life so that we may be able to hold these people accountable.
0: It's sad that it took a life in order for the world to wake up, but you're right, he has changed the world. Thank you so much, Bishop Harding Smith, for your time today.
2: I thank you for having me.
0: One person who has been paying close attention to the Chauvin verdict and understands firsthand the complexities of racial profiling and police relations right here in Canada is former RCMP Staff Sergeant Alain Babineau. Alain, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So tell us what how you felt when you heard the verdict. Um,
1: you know it was uh was very pleased with the results i was uh i was somewhat surprised i gotta be honest with you because uh it's not easy to uh particularly on all three counts you know you got a guilty verdict on all three counts and and that's not easy to um to obtain from uh, from the prosecution not only that but i mean against the police officers it's even worse because uh because of the, uh, you know, because of the authorities that police officers have to use lethal force and to use force, generally speaking, but also lethal force. So, uh, so I was surprised, but I, um, I, uh, I was pleased.
0: Mm. Many can- Canadians pass this off as an American problem when I'm talking about, especially police relations, uh, when it comes to the black community. How does the verdict impact Canadian policing, you think?
1: It's probably too early to tell, How much what the impact of the uh, of the results uh, of the verdict will will be on policing in this country but I'm but I'm you know cautiously optimistic that uh, that we meaning law enforcement and uh, the government will get ahead of the curve okay so because we have a tendency to believe sometimes that uh, you know this is an American problem and that we don't you know we're not racist we don't have any you know, race he issues here are pretty good, and um, and uh, you know that's just an American thing. But uh, but but that's you know very far from the truth.
0: Yeah. What What does police reform look like in this country? You think?
1: Well, you know what? I mean, I'm, I'm you know I'm going to be <laughs> police reform. Right, we've been talking about police reform for a number of years, and obviously since the uh, the uh, you know George Floyd uh, killing last summer. There's been a great deal of talk about, uh, you know, mental health issues, uh, uh, de-escalation techniques, uh, uh, you know, uh, all of that. And, but, but I think this is a watershed moment and, and an opportunity for the federal government to really take a leadership role here. Because policing is a is a dual responsibility, constitutional dual responsibility, between the federal government and the provinces, right? And so, much the same way that we're seeing the federal government right now, you know, showing leadership in the COVID nineteen crisis, right? Because you got to remember also that you know health is also a provincial jurisdiction, but you need that kind of that that kind of coordinated federal uh, uh, involvement. I'm looking for the same type of leadership with respect to uh, policing reforms, starting with a a federal law prohibiting racial profiling but all police services in this country. And we haven't seen that yet because we know all too well that when there are those those initiatives, uh, for instance, guns and gangs or war on drugs or or organized crime, uh, you know, street gangs, and all that kind of, uh that kind of stuff, is that we have collateral damage, and and the communities that have suffering collateral damage, are unfortunately far too often, uh, mainly black communities right across this country, and indigenous communities as well, and so we need to have that leadership from the federal government, and that's what I'm calling on.
0: Okay, so many questions coming out of that. My first question uh, first is uh, accountability. And so, you know, we hear from Brenda Lucky, head of the RCMP, um, that there, she didn't believe that there was systemic racism within her organization. How about just accountability from the senior positions that there is a problem?
1: The default uh, uh, approach from police services historically have been threefold. Diversity and inclusion training more community relation and that, that usually translates into basketball teams and playing soccer with the young kids and all of that. And, 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 and lastly, having, having some, uh, some more training. But training would be diversity and inclusion. And so um, or no, the, the third one would be more visible minorities officers. Well, those things have not worked. OK, there's nothing wrong with having more uh, black cops or, or, or visible minority police officers. I mean, we encourage that because everybody should get an opportunity to 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 get a good profession, right, to to be accepted. And to, so and we should also be reflective of the population that we serve. And, and so there's nothing wrong with that. But with respect to community relation, you can't be having, you know, playing soccer with the kids. Uh, police officers playing soccer with the kids on a Saturday afternoon, and then your your teammates or your 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 uh, partners in the evening are going to be racially profiling the same kids that you played soccer with, or one of the coaches on his way home gets racially profiled. No, that don't work. That's counterproductive. And 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 lastly, we can't be uh, um, you know. Uh, teaching the communities how policing works. I mean, that's one thing, but we also need to understand the plight and the the reality of those communities. And so that uh, there's transformation that also has to take place within uh, uh, the the police service. And we haven't seen that kind of equal partnership yet. So that's kind that's called leadership.
0: The Ontario Human Rights Commission had released a report you're probably aware of on the Toronto Police Service last year, stating that while Black people represent only 8.8% of Toronto's population, Black people represented almost one third, 32% of all the charges in in the charge data set, while white people and other racialized groups were underrepresented. And we saw that kind of um, represented in so many stats throughout this, report and, and unfortunately there isn't a lot of data when it comes to our country nationally when it when we're talking about the relationship between police and specifically black and indigenous um, uh, groups and communities you know when we hear these stark realities when we hear the statistics of just the tension between the two groups fundamentally there is a, a it's a broken system some would say it's not even a system that was created for black and brown people. How do we, how do we try to fix the system? Again, you're talking about community and you're talking about communication, but it seems so much deeper than that.
1: Of course, (laughs) of course, no, it's much deeper because this is, this is a social, a social problem. This is a societal issue, right? Racism, discrimination, stereotype. All of that stuff, and I, you know, we could talk for a couple hours, but uh, all, you know, racial profiling—it's all based on the stereotypes, and those stereotypes uh, regarding black people, um, criminalities, and, and and you name it. I mean, we, we could go, we could go on and on and on and on. Well, stereotypes are well entrenched in society at large. This has nothing to do with policing. This is society at large. And, and that have developed over time that have been part of a uh, well-orchestrated uh, media, uh, 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 you know, production, if you will, through, through movies, through news, through, okay. through all kinds of different things that over time, it's developed in the minds of, 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 of people in society from, from which the police come from. Right? Police officers are not parachuted from somewhere you know, some other world that, that didn't become police officers. They're the product of society from where they come from. So we have to address the issue at three level, right? Micro level. That means that that, that there has to be a good system of, of complaints. It has to be, you know, civil uh, litigation. It has to be, you know, for, to, 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 uh, to make sure that we deter these behavior and we punish them as, as, as required. Then there has to be a meso approach, which is basically internally, how do we change some of the laws that are in place, how do we, how do we change the policies, how, what do we need to do, like I suggest, I propose a federal law, right, that's that's a meso approach, but then there's the macro approach, and that comes through, when you send your kid, you know, to kindergarten, they're going to start learning about Black people and Indigenous people are being respectable. People are being contri- uh, contributing uh, 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 citizens of this society to the history. And so, by the time they become police officers or journalists or or judges and whatnot, they will look that they won't make no difference. Yeah, if somebody is black, and that's okay. And nothing wrong with that because everybody's got, you know. Uh, but at the same time, they all have they are all contributing uh, members of society. And so, there's three levels. That needs to be approved. One is quickly; one takes a little longer. The one, long, the one that you know, you, you you know, your kids will hopefully benefit from. But I'll be long gone before that. Those, those you know, societal changes uh, will take place.
0: Alain Babineau, Absolutely. thank you so much for your time today. Thank, thank, you thank you for
1: very much for having me. Have a good one.
0: Coming up: Does the church need a wake-up call when it comes to its own role in racism? Author, professor, and theologian Drew Hart shares how the church can change
2: like to watch more context beyond the headlines catch up on any of our shows online on youtube search context beyond the headlines for the most up-to-date episodes and extended content listen on the go with apple spotify or google podcast check out our reporters and producers stories at our website context.show follow us on instagram at context beyond the headlines and twitter at context tv There are so many ways to put more context into your life.
0: Drew Hart is a prolific writer whose books challenge the church in the way it views racism. Trouble I've seen and who will be a witness are enlightening on so many levels when it comes to the discussion of anti-black racism. Thank you, Professor Hart, for joining us today.
4: Oh, Thank you for having me.
0: Some have called 2020 a year of global racial reckoning. How do you see the past year?
4: Yeah, well, I, I, I see it as a, a year of a racial dilemma for a lot of folks, right? And I would say that uh, for some folks, it's been a racial reckoning. But I'd say for other folks, it's been a racial hardening. And I would say for other folks, it's been a racial awakening, but it's kind of undetermined yet where that's going to go, right? That there's for some folks, Um, They're reading books, they're thinking about race. Um, but they could go back to sleep on this issue, but they could also go deeper in, right? They maybe been reading popular books on the New York Times, um, but there's not necessarily any commitment in action yet. And so I think there's a—it's been a lot of different things for a lot of different people this year. But the the reality is, everyone in some way had to respond, so even if it's hardening one's heart. They had to respond to the moment. It wasn't something that you could just pretend was not happening.
0: Yeah, you couldn't ignore the conversation that was happening globally. You say the church needs to wake up, calling out color blind Ideology. How does the church get past that when it when a lot of it a lot of people get struck on theories, Black Lives Matter, and you know quoting Galatians three twenty eight, and yet not addressing the real issues of inequality?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, we've got to begin to be really attentive to people's actual lived experiences and not just get stuck inside the inside the narratives that we've been told. And so, I think that. Uh, for many of us, um, there's there's always the Christian practice of receiving the sacred stories of others and allowing them to change you. And in, in particular, as followers of Jesus, it should be receiving the stories of those who've been most marginalized, right? The least, the last, and lost in society, those who've been left behind. Um, and allowing their stories of oppression and discrimination and the obstacles that have been created um, to prevent access into thriving um, that that need to be taken very seriously. And so I think until we deal with those systemic realities, um, pretending that we live in a post-racial society is just not gonna get us anywhere. It's just gonna continue to repeat the same cycles of issues that we've dealt with for centuries.
0: There's also been a lot of silence among prominent church leaders when it comes to anti-racism. You say the church must join with racially oppressed communities. What does that look like, especially for the white church?
4: Yeah, um, that we've got to move beyond just feeling bad or having guilt or I don't know, having book studies to actually joining in. Um, In fact, I mean, some of the idea of reconciliation is not just about being buddy-buddy and having sentimental kind of responses and relationships, but what does it mean to exchange places with, right? To enter in fully and to make someone else's sufferings, your own sufferings, and then in solidarity and mutuality in Christ to move forward and struggle for a new world, for God's dream for us. Um, And so on the ground, what would it actually mean for, communities, churches, to actually struggle doing grassroots work, struggling movement work, organizing, right? Um, As though the concerns and the things that are impacting others are impacting themselves because we are actually family together.
0: Mm. On that point, what do you say to those who say the church has no role when it comes to social justice? How do you see Jesus combat social injustice?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that Jesus only concerned Himself with spiritual things is an argument that goes back to slavery. I mean, it's not really a position that. Um, you'd want to take, if you understood how these ideas developed, um, where you're on the wrong side of issues, right? When you begin to take that issue, but it's very clear for Jesus. I mean, he Luke 4, 18 and 19, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then what is in the rest of the gospel? Luke, what does he do? Just that, right? He's actually prioritizing the last are first and the first are last in his ministry. It's the vulnerable women. It's the Samaritan right, it's those who have been stigmatized in their society, those who are poor and oppressed that are finding healing and deliverance because of the kingdom reign and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so in that same kind of way, we ought to then be followers of Jesus, take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow him. And so we've got to engage in the same kind of holistic ministry that cares for the whole person. And that also Jesus confronted the establishment and spoke truth to power. And when we need to, we have to be uh, willing to do that and accept the consequences like Jesus did.
0: Are you hopeful that the church can lead in the reform when it comes to anti-racism?
4: Am I hopeful? That's a tough question, right? Um, Yes and no. Um, No, in the grand scheme of church history, it's very bleak. The church has mangled its witness. It has diseased and vandalized the name of Jesus in the public square. And I take that to heart. And I don't think we can take that lightly. On the other hand, uh, you know, I do find hope in the sense of the embodied hope of folks who are actually living out the Jesus story for their neighbors, right? That that Uh, brings me hope when I actually see people um, actually taking the gospel seriously seriously enough that they're living it um, and they're making the reign of God manifest for others who are watching in the world. Um, That's encouraging, it's life-giving, and it's participating in God's deliverance in the world. And so there's a lot of hope for for me when that gets in flesh, but it's not just words, but also deeds that are being lived out uh, before a watching world.
0: Oh, so good. I think I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much, Professor Drew Hart for your time today. The guilty verdict has left many of us with a sense of hope, but there is still a lot of work to be done. We leave you now with the faces of Say Every Name. We say their names and we say a prayer for their families and friends left behind and for more healing in our world.